this path and the unfolding of our practice in meditation in the spiritual life has been described in a number of different ways. Different traditions use different models or um, frameworks for describing the spiritual life, the spiritual path. And the Buddha taught in different ways uh, at different times, depending on his audience and the situation. And uh, he had a real genius at uh, seeming to be able to offer what was most useful to any, any particular audience at any time. And so sometimes we, we hear the path described in terms of the unfolding of the Four Noble Truths, an understanding of this core teaching in terms of the, uh, the truth of suffering, the cause of it, the cessation and then the Eightfold Noble Path in this training in uh, Sila Samadhi Panya, the unfolding that leads to that cessation of suffering. Sometimes uh, it's spoken about in terms of what's called the progress of insight, this uh, deep seeing into the characteristics of anicca, dukkha, anatta through stages of insight and stages of uh, awakening, spoken about in that way. Sometimes uh, in terms of discovering our Buddha nature, resting in natural great perfection, you could say, touching into this luminous quality of the mind and heart that's already awake. It never has been any other way spoken about in that way. And we've, we've talked uh, in different ways about how the path unfolds here over these weeks. And at different times, one or the other of these ways of looking at things may resonate with us more or seem to to be more clearly paralleling our experience in any particular moment. may be useful to hold our practice in one way or another at different times. There's one description which I think is always useful, always appropriate, and actually can be a very powerful way of uh, looking at the unfolding of our practice. And I've spoken about this already and others have as well, but this is in terms of the ripening of paramis, paramitas, these 10 beautiful qualities of mind and heart. It's said that the Buddha perfected over countless lifetimes. And if we reflect on the spiritual life in terms of the ripening of these beautiful qualities, terms of the ripening, the perfecting of the paramis, then it really opens up the breadth of what we relate to as practice, which can sometimes get very narrow. We think of it as the the time sitting on the cushion, formally uh, engaged in meditation. But the paramis really is a very broad way of looking at the spiritual life and uh, really, really helpful, I think, at any time. It helps us to really cut through the tendency we have so often to be judging and assessing and evaluating our experience and our practice in meditation. You know, so often we, we fall into looking for evidence of progress. We get in so caught up in, in mentally comparing ourselves with our projections of what's happening for other yogis on retreat looking to see, you know, is it working? Am I doing it right? Am I getting it? It's so easy to fall into those, 
mind states, you know, and judging our experience, then judging ourselves based on our perception of that experience. And we can look overlook a lot of good qualities that are actually getting uh, strengthened, getting developed, just because we're willing to keep at it, to show up again and again, to come back and begin again. Just through that, we're developing a lot of good qualities, perseverance and energy, determination. And I think this way of viewing the path in terms of the ripening of paramis, it's, it's really common in uh, some of the Buddhist countries in Asia where I've spent time. Um, it's, the path is spoken about this way a lot in, in that culture, in those places. Um, so often my teachers would speak about uh, progress, or not even progress, but in, speak of the spiritual life in terms of ripening of paramis relating to it in that way, speaking about it in that way. And I think in some ways this has at least something to do with um, the very broad view that they hold of uh, practice unfolding over lifetimes. And that these uh, qualities are nurtured and um, strengthened over a long period of time, reflecting the understanding of rebirth that permeates those cultures in a very deep way. And whether or not the idea of rebirth is meaningful for us, you know, there's no requirement that that be meaningful or that you adopt that as some kind of belief or uh, something like that. But we can see it in terms of one lifetime. You know, how many, or just in, in one day, how many different births do we take over the course of a day? You know, we can take birth in, um, even in a single meditation period, we can take birth in heaven realms of bliss and pleasure, and we can take birth in uh, dukkha realms of uh, just deep, uh, difficult states, despair and anguish, and everywhere in between in just a single sitting period, isn't it? So we could see our whole life, a whole day, as a series of, of births and passings away in new births, moment by moment. We can look at our, our life in this way. And throughout this ebb and flow of change, of births, lives, passings away, rebirths, we're strengthening, developing these beautiful qualities of the paramis, whether we notice that or not. I think it's really good to reflect on it in this way. And it's so interesting, you know, we meet people sometimes who seem to just have one or more of, of these qualities of the paramis highly developed. They seem just to have come into life that way. It seems like they just are born in that way. Um, you know, they may have a lot of, just seem to be naturally very kind or generous or have a lot of energy. I think of my mother in this way. She had a lot of these beautiful qualities, very highly developed. She was a really cool person my mom, and I think of like energy, for example. I didn't really notice it when I was growing up, but she had so much energy. She you know, took care of the house and she planted a garden and she was a really great cook. She did all the cooking and she was a potter. So all the dishes, pretty much all the dishes in the house she made, 
really beautiful stuff. She worked in an uh, artist cooperative gallery, helped her run that, worked there, sold her things there. She had lots of friends. She raised four kids. She um, did all kinds of incredible volunteer work. When I think about it, list this out, I don't know how she did it. You know, it's like, it doesn't seem like enough hours in the day. And it was all done with this, it wasn't hyper kind of driven energy there. It was just my mom, the way she was. And it was very um, done with a real ease and grace. It was very just natural. She just had a lot of energy. And, uh, you know, some people do seem to just be that way, come into life that way. And, and uh, we, we meet people who just seem to deepen and progress in their meditation very easily. And in Asia, the teachers would say, well, their paramis are very ripe. You know, they just say that's, that's just the way it is. And there's the understanding that we're not all the same in this way. So I brought one of my favorite books to, uh, this is like show, the show and tell part of the talk. <laughs> Some of you have heard me read from this. Uh, I brought one of my favorite books. It's called Frog and Toad Together. And um, it's a level two reading with help book. <laughs> which, uh, that's kind of my speed some of the time. So uh, I'll, I'm going to read a story. I'm going to get my glasses here. Um, so this story is called The Garden. And uh, they're good pictures. I love kids' books with great pictures, um, which I can't share with you. But frog is green, and toad is kind of brownish and uh, warty. And they're really good friends. So... Uh, This is the garden. This is Frog and Toad Together by Arnold Lobel. Frog was in his garden. Toad came walking by. What a fine garden you have, Frog, he said. Yes, said Frog, it is very nice, but it was hard work. I wish I had a garden, said Toad. Here are some flower seeds. Plant them in the ground, said Frog, and soon you will have a garden. How soon, asked Toad. Quite soon, said Frog. Toad ran home. He planted the flower seeds. Now seeds, said Toad, start growing. (laughs) Toad walked up and down a few times. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head close to the ground and said loudly, Now seeds, start growing. Toad looked at the ground again. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head very close to the ground and shouted, Now seeds, start growing! Frog came running up the path. What is all this noise, he asked. My seeds will not grow, said Toad. (laughs) You are shouting too much, said Frog. These poor seeds are afraid to grow. My seeds are afraid to grow, asked Toad. Of course, said Frog. Leave them alone for a few days. Let the sun shine on them. Let the rain fall on them. Soon your seeds will start to grow. That night, Toad looked out of his window. Drat, said Toad. (laughs) My seeds have not started to grow. (laughs) They must be afraid of the dark. Toad went out to his garden with some candles. I will read the seeds a story, said Toad. Then they will not be afraid. 
Toad read a long story to his seeds. All the next day, Toad sang songs to his seeds. And all the next day, Toad read poems to his seeds. And all the next day, Toad played music to his seeds. Toad looked at the ground. The seeds still did not start to grow. What shall I do, cried Toad. These must be the most frightened seeds in the whole world. (laughs) Then Toad felt very tired and he fell asleep. Toad, Toad, wake up, said Frog. Look at your garden. Toad looked at his garden. Little green plants were coming up out of the ground. At last, shouted Toad, my seeds have stopped being afraid to grow. And now you will have a nice garden too, said Frog. Yes, said Toad, but you were right, Frog. It was very hard work. (laughs) You might sort of have gotten the idea of my point here. You know, our practice really is a lot like planting seeds. And, you know, we use this image a lot. But it's a good one. It's actually a really useful image to uh, hold our practice in this way, that our job is just to plant those seeds. But, you know, a lot of the time we're like Toad with his seeds, and they don't come up fast enough for our taste. And, you know, the first question we ask, we start practice, is how soon? You know, we start to look, is it working? Are they growing? And we don't see results. And then, like Toad, you know, we start to yell at our seeds. And we yell at ourselves internally a lot of the time. You know, we're not doing it right. And then, you know, maybe we try all kinds of strategies like Toad with his seeds and uh, playing, reading them stories and playing music and all the rest of it. But often we're not that kind. You know, we don't do those things. He, was, he played the violin for them in the picture there. But we don't read stories or poems to them. We blame them or then we blame ourselves. We find fault with the, the teachings or the teachers, you know, and we, we look outside and point around to place the blame for our, our apparent lack of results. Here's another story. This is from uh, the Samyutta Nikaya. It's a story the Buddha is talking about a hen incubating her eggs. Suppose a hen has eight, 10, or 12 eggs. If she doesn't cover them rightly, warm them rightly, or incubate them rightly, then even though this wish may occur to her, oh, that my chicks might break through the eggshells with their spiked claws and beaks and hatch out safely. Still, it is not possible that the chicks will break through the eggshells and hatch out safely. Why is that? Because the hen has not covered them rightly, warmed them rightly, or incubated them rightly. And so no matter how much we want things to happen on our timetable quickly. You know, if we don't sit on our eggs, they're not going to hatch. We need to give these seeds we're planting, let them sprout in their own time. And sometimes it takes them a while. You know, we're so impatient as a society, I think. We have a lot of impatience. Everything, we want everything to be done fast. We want quick results. We lose interest if things don't happen quickly. We always think, well, there's got to be a better way, and better always means quicker. You know, and there's, we want to find a shortcut. There's got to be a shortcut. 
It's like that story of the, the letter that came here addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. Someone else mentioned, you know, we want instant meditation if we can get it. You know, like a, a packet we could open and mix up. And because we're so impatient, we often misunderstand what, what patience really is, what it's about. And sometimes we can confuse it with an attitude of, of maybe not caring about what we're doing or about the results of our practice, some kind of an indifference. Or we think patience means some kind of stoic attitude where we, we grit our teeth and we bear down and we make it through. But we can come out of that with a lot of tightness and contraction in our hearts and bodies and minds. We don't want to learn about patience because we usually have to do it when things are difficult. You know, it's easy to be patient when things are going well. You know, if we're having really pleasant, nice, easy experience, the issue of patience doesn't even come up then. We generally don't feel, oh, I have to be patient with this lovely, blissful mind state. But without the quality of patience in life, in our practice, we're really going to have a hard time. We will suffer without this because things aren't going to go the way we want them to all the time. And patience is, is essential in our life, in our practice. And we're going to face challenges no matter what. That's, that's just part of the deal when we take birth. There will be challenges in our life. You know, we're here on retreat, you know, we're sitting, we're minding our own business, everything's going well, and then, and then it just changes for no apparent reason. You know, we see this in our meditation, things, it's easy and clear, we feel relaxed and present, we're connecting, everything is just flowing along, the practice is doing itself, and then all of a sudden it just falls apart and we're filled with resistance and we're angry and frustrated. And it's, it's so, a day can feel like, you know, the movement between these kinds of extremes. Where it's going great and then it just turns to a train wreck and what did we do wrong and then it gets better again. You know, it might be easier if it just didn't change so much. You know, if it was kind of a drag all the time, maybe we'd get used to it. <laughs> but, you know, there are times when it's not too bad. It feels like it's actually going okay. Things come together and then we lose it again. And it seems like we must have done something wrong. We blew it somehow. I was recently on a retreat and at one point I thought, if I had never done this, I'd be just as good, if not better, than I am at it now. <laughs> that, was how, that was my perception. I thought, you know, if I'd never done it, it would be going better. <laughs> you know, we have moments like this. And so we really need to find and cultivate qualities of patience and acceptance, forbearance, the kind of compassion that Susie spoke about last night, which is an aspect of this patience, gentleness, steadiness, all of these qualities that are in part of this, uh, this parami of patience. Kanti is the Pali word for patience, kanti parami. It includes all these qualities I've just mentioned. We need to really cultivate this um, to help us. I mean, it's, it's one of our best allies in practice. True patience has this kind, gentle 
attitude, compassionate, caring attitude, this willingness to stay with it, to stay steady as we navigate the ups and downs and the rocky terrain of a life, of our practice, of what it means to be human. You know, sometimes I think we have this idea, this notion that um, the goal or the, the result of our practice is going to be reaching a state where we only have pleasant experiences. You know, none of us would admit that if someone asked us outright, but secretly we're holding out some hope that, that that's what's the trajectory, you know, that we're, we're somehow we're tipping the balance in that direction where, you know, a little longer and it's just going to be kind of really nice all the time, as though this were, were the, uh, as though enlightenment was some kind of steady state of nothing but pleasant experiences and pleasant feelings in the body and the mind. You know, and it's said that there are some deva realms, some heavenly realms where it's like that, you know, where it's only pleasant. And that might be sounding kind of good right about now <laughs> to some of us. But the human realm with this mix is said to be the best place to practice and to realize the Dhamma. So this is the best realm for that. These realms of pure pleasure, there's not much motivation for practice. It's not too pleasant here, so we have some motivation, and it's not so difficult that we're just crushed under the weight of suffering. We get some of both, and it's said this is the best place to practice. And the freedom the Buddha was pointing to is a freedom that doesn't depend on things being a particular way. It doesn't depend on it being pleasant all the time. You know, a true freedom cannot depend on things being any particular way because conditions are always changing. Enlightenment doesn't mean we somehow suddenly get control over that. Conditions are always changing. And any peace we find that's dependent on conditions being some particular way, it won't last. It's not a real freedom. And so in our practice, we have to learn to be able to open to the whole thing, to the entirety of our life, when things are going well and when they're not, when it's easy, when it's difficult. If we only open up when things are going the way we like, when it's pleasant and flowing easily, if we like it, then what are we learning then? There is no real freedom in that. If our happiness depends on life going only the way we want it to, we're going to be in for a hard time of it. We're setting ourselves up for frustration, for suffering. And so we'll come to a retreat like this, you know, and maybe we have, maybe sometimes we come with a bit of an agenda of something, you know, we want to find some peace, some calm, some ease. Nothing wrong with that. Sometimes we come and we, there's something we want to fix in ourselves, fix in our lives, or figure out, or you know, or have an idea I'm going to get something that I don't have already, or find something that will make me happier. We sit down, we just hoping for a little ease and calm, and we start paying attention to our experience and you know, what do we find there? 
You know, there's this wild, uncontrollable mind. So much of the time it's full of resistance and pettiness. And everything we've ever repressed or denied or done our best to forget shows up. You know, even the stuff that's not difficult is just boring or repetitious or embarrassing. It all comes, you know, every song and jingle and <laughs> stupid TV show we ever watched, we start seeing reruns of that. This is a story about a man named Jim, <laughs> a poor mountaineer, <laughs> hardly kept his family fed. You know, it's, it's all in there. <laughs> you know, sooner or later, everything is going to come up. And some of it's not that easy to be with. And there's so much in our experience that we put into the, into the category of unacceptable, isn't it? How much in uh, that we experience that unfolds over the course of a day gets tossed into the unacceptable bin? Or all the stuff that we put in a, a little hidden compartment, not going to look at that, we put it away. But this is not a, ultimately a good strategy because it's all going to come up at some point. And the path is going to test us in different ways at different times. And we're going to have to look at it all sooner or later. I once read an article. It was someone who was describing a, a time that they'd been uh, for a, an evening event, a teaching that was being given by the, the very famous uh, Tibetan teacher named Chogyang Trungpa Rinpoche. Many of you have heard of him. And this was an event in Berkeley, California, and a lot of people had come. He was very famous and popular, a big hall, and you know everyone was there waiting. And he had a he tended to arrive late to these events, so he was quite late as usual. And uh, finally, he shows up, and and this is what he said to start: "If you want your money back, it's all right. Just go to the door and ask for it back. It's quite fine." In fact, if you haven't started the spiritual path, best not to begin. It's difficult, it's terrible, and you have to face all kinds of things that you won't like. As far as the ego is concerned, it's just one insult after another. <laughs> I mean, sometimes that's what it feels like over a day, just one insult after another. But we really do have to develop a relationship with our entire being. And patience is absolutely necessary for this. It's a, it's a total necessity in this process. You know, we can have the idea that we have to get rid of certain things in, in our lives, in our experience, in order to practice properly or, or achieve some kind of, you know, special state for the practice to unfold. But right here, right now, in the middle of it all, right in the midst of it, is where the practice happens. It's not in some future state of grace. It's right here in this body, in this mind, in this moment. This is where the practice happens. This is the the Dhamma unfolding. It reveals itself right in the middle of this mess. And patience really is, as I said, one of our very best allies as we walk this path. 
patience allows us to navigate this process with some stability, with some ease, with kindness and gentleness. We can stay steady with the ups and downs and helps us to be find that willingness to begin again, which so much of the practice is this willingness to begin again. We're not going to get anywhere without a willingness to start over. If there's any single one key to it, it's that willingness to begin again. You know, we're going to get caught. We're going to get hooked by things. Even we've seen through them from all sides. We'll, we'll get caught again and again. Sometimes it's going to be difficult. And we really need to remind ourselves that this is a path that takes time. And you know, much of what we're doing, you could say, is unlearning old, deeply conditioned habits of mind and heart. And we've been practicing them for a long, long time, maybe for lifetimes. And it's going to take time to unlearn those, to loosen that pattern. And the only way this is going to happen is to stick to it, to stick with the practice, to be resolute in what we're doing. You know, this is what's going to serve us and will really be the thing that makes the difference for us. And until we're fully enlightened, there are going to be times when we're lost in confusion, struggling in different ways. And if we're fighting against that, fighting against this process, we'll suffer and create a situation where we're never good enough, where we're never okay, just as we are. Sometimes life presents us with uh, the chance to develop patience uh, that we might wish we weren't getting. Usually that's the case. You know, we mostly learn about patience by being impatient. My sister and I were very um, much involved in caring for my parents in the years leading up to their deaths. They died close to one another, um, about 10 weeks apart, and both of them were nearly 92, and they'd been together for 70 years, which is a long time to do anything at all, let alone stay married to the same person. And um, they still even liked each other. They were very sweet. One of my friends came to visit, and my parents were in their late 80s, and they were sitting on the couch holding hands. She was really amazed by that. They, They still liked each other after being together for that long. But it wasn't easy. My mother, in her later years, she... Uh, had uh, kinds of dementia um, where her mind really wasn't functioning very well. And I would visit and we would have the same conversations over and over and over. I know s- many of you have have uh, friends or relatives where you know, you've been around this kind of situation. I mean, just great patience was required and sometimes I didn't have a lot of it. And my father was very... Uh, he had a real trouble with my mother's decline. It was very, very um, not easy. And, you know, there were a lot of times when I didn't have a lot of patience. You know, and spending time with our families, that's really where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? You know, it's easy to be wise and equanimous in a meditation center. (laughs) But go hang with the family and see, that's where you find out more practice is required. (laughs) Definitely. 
You know, and if we tell ourselves just, we just tell ourselves to be patient, to tolerate difficulties in our practice. And, you know, we, we can get into this kind of, well, I'm just going to bear it. And we can get tight. What we really need to do at times like that is to really take a look at impatience, explore the quality of impatience, how that manifests in our heart, in our mind, how it manifests in the body. What are the thoughts, the emotions, the stories that come up? How does it affect us? What happens when we get identified with that quality of impatience? You know, and how many times have we reacted out of impatience, lashed out in some way, or you know, spoken from a place of frustration and impatience, and, and then you know, regretting that? I remember times of speaking harshly to my father during this, these difficult years and, you know, the pain of having done that, doing my best to make some kind of amends. There's a Chinese proverb that says, one moment of patience may ward off great disaster. One moment of impatience may ruin a whole life. And we can think of, of situations where a moment of impatience leads to some kind of act that that can just alter the entire course of a life. One strategy that can help with developing the quality of patience, really cultivating this, one thing we can do actually that's, that's quite interesting and useful is to look at um, our relationship to unpleasant experience, to unpleasant feelings, which I've been talking about a bit already. It helps us to develop patience and it, it helps us to work with impatience, both sides of this. You know, how often do we relate to an unpleasant feeling tone to our experience as um, problematic, as bad, as wrong, as something to be gotten rid of? You know, we can write off a whole day here on retreat because there was a predominance of unpleasant feeling tone to our experience. We can just write it off. You know, we find ourselves reporting, oh, it's not been going so well, or I had kind of a bad day yesterday. And if we look, often what we're talking about is that it was kind of unpleasant. My experience had an unpleasant feeling tone, a higher percentage of that. And, you know, we, we report, oh, it's going really well. And what do we mean? Often it's because it feels really pleasant a higher percentage of times where it's a pleasant feeling. If we relate to unpleasant feelings only as wrong, bad, problem, something to get rid of, you know, we're missing out on a real opportunity there. And we are, we're dismissing a big part of our life as being without value. But there's actually a lot we can learn there if we're willing to actually look into it we can reframe our experience a bit and bring some interest and investigation to our experience, see it as something we can explore. And in that moment, if we do that, even in the midst of something that's really difficult and unpleasant, things can really open up. Our mind and heart can open in powerful, beautiful ways. We really start to see that our experience is conditional, that it's subject to change, that it's impersonal that things arise due to conditions, to causes, and 
change when those conditions change. We can start to touch a place of freedom and ease right in the middle of something that's unpleasant and difficult. Patience allows us to meet our life more fully, more completely. And rather than trying to make life meet our agenda, live up to some expectation we might have about how it should be, how it's supposed to be, we meet life just as it is right now, just like this, however it is. Another useful consideration in the development of patience is to remind ourselves that our practice consists of small steps taken many times. You know, if we sit down and we have it, if we wake up in the morning and we we have it in mind, I'm going to be mindful for the whole day. Or maybe we go to a sitting, I'm going to be mindful for for this whole sitting. Or even I'll be mindful for the next five minutes. You know, we may set ourselves up to fail at that and find frustration and impatience coming because we're not able to do it. But if we say, I'll just be mindful for this moment, that's all we have anyway. We can't be mindful for the next five minutes. We can only be present for this moment. If we're still there, we'll do the next one. If we get lost, then whenever we come back, then we'll do that one. So we do one step at a time. We do this moment and then the next moment and then the next one. This little step over and over. And that's really manageable, sustainable. if We hold it in that way. There's a technical definition of patience from the text that actually has some useful considerations. Sometimes I like to bring these definitions in. So it says, Patience has the characteristic of acceptance. Its function is to endure the desirable and the undesirable. Its manifestation is tolerance or non-opposition. And seeing things as they really are is its proximate cause, the proximate cause for it to arise. This quality of acceptance is really a key aspect of true patience. this acceptance, this acknowledgement of the way it is, we're we're taking our stand on reality with that, acknowledging the truth of the moment, not in terms of how we want it to be or think it should be, but how it really is. We stand on the truth of things. And it's important to remember that this quality of acceptance, it's not nothing like resignation. It's not resignation. It's like this with a resigned kind of uh, attitude. It's, resignation is a, is a kind of defeated, collapsed state. But acceptance is alive and vital and connected. Acknowledging, no, it's like this now. And this points to this, what was defined as the proximate cause for the arising of patience is seeing things as they really are. You know, so often we're focused on the way we think it should be. We lose sight of the way it is right here and now. If we take our stand on that reality, this can allow patience to flower in the moment. That definition, it said that the function of patience is to endure the desirable and the undesirable. You could say the pleasant and the unpleasant, the agreeable and the disagreeable. 
the acceptable and the unacceptable. These different ways we might say that. There's a sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya. It's the Buddha's, the greater discourse on the Buddha's advice to his son Rahula. And in that, he had, it's a long teaching, but one part of it, he advised Rahula to develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain there. Patience allows us to remain firm and steady like the earth itself, this impartial, firm, resolute quality. You know, we sit like a mountain. The mountain is not moved. All kinds of things can happen. You know, usually we don't think of of desirable things being something we have to endure. I think this points to a a relationship uh, with impermanence, with the quality of impermanence. We endure the desirable, the pleasant, in that we know that it won't last, that it's subject to arising and passing like everything else. And so we endure the desirable in that we don't hold on to it. We let it be there, and then we know that it will pass away. And so there's a balanced relationship to the changes, the ups and downs that we come uh, to inevitably in our practice. And then it said the manifestation of patience is tolerance or non-opposition. This is an aspect of the quality of patience where we're not in contention with our experience. We're not struggling against it. Patience has the ability to flow with change, to ride these changes without fighting against the times when it's difficult, this tolerance, this non-opposition. We really build a, a really great strength of heart with this. We don't falter in the face of what's difficult. We don't shrink in defeat or withdraw from challenging times. We don't struggle and fight either which just exhausts us. We find a place in the middle of that. We don't fight to the point where we just give up. This is this quality of non-opposition that's an aspect of patience, not in contention with the truth of things. Sometimes the quality of patience uh, manifests as an incredible quality of strength and compassion and courage. Sometimes patience has these qualities as well. This is an excerpt from uh, a sermon, a Christmas sermon on peace by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Beautiful sermon he delivered at Christmas time. We shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what we will, and we will still love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws and abide by the unjust system, because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. And so throw us in jail, and we will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children, and as difficult as it is, we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour 
and drag us out on some wayside road and leave us half dead as you beat us, and we will still love you. Send your propaganda agents around the country and make it appear that we are not fit culturally and otherwise for integration, but we'll still love you. And be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer, and one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. I think this speaks to one of the most powerful aspects of the quality of patience, this courageous heart of compassion that knows suffering, that understands the nature of confusion, knows what it is like to act from that place of pain and suffering and confusion, and is able to bring kindness and compassion to bear in the face of that. Incredible strength in that quality of patience. The poet named uh, John Chardy had a, a beautiful short description of patience that I really love. It speaks to this quality. He said, patience is the art of caring slowly. Patience is the art of caring slowly. Deep quality of connection and care it's part of that. So one thing worth remembering as we walk this path, as we engage in the spiritual life, in the life of the meditative life, to really remind ourselves of this really regularly, I think, is that most worthwhile things in life take time to develop and grow. I'll read a short quotation from Tanisaro Bhikkhu. It speaks to this very beautifully. Good things always take time. The trees with the most solid heartwood are the ones that take the longest to grow. So we do the practice, focusing on what we're doing, rather than getting into an internal dialogue about the results and when they're going to come, what they're going to be like, and how we can speed up the practice. Many times our efforts to speed things up, up actually just get in the way. As for whether the results are coming as quickly as you'd like, or when they do come, whether they're going to stay as long as you'd like, that's going to depend on what you're doing right here and now. Our desire to have the results come, our desire to have them stay is not going to keep them here. The actual doing of the practice is what will make the difference. So I'll end tonight with a short poem by a poet named Linda France. It's called Dreaming the Real. I'm lying down, looking at the color of sky falling through trees, dreaming the real tasting what it feels like to love it. Why did it take me so long to let go? Simply exhale so the day could breathe itself in and open without me standing in the way. How could I forget the tender grace of my own body, strong as this blue, tender as the white of the wild blossom, 
warm as midday light. Let me practice a patience bold enough to hold every weather, trusting the elements, the beauty of rain and all its shades of gray. I want whatever's real to be enough. At least it's a place to begin and to master the art of loving it, feel it love me back under my skin. So let's keep sitting quietly for a few minutes here then I'll ring the bell. Thank you for your kind attention this evening. And uh, there's a time for walking meditation and the chanting at the last sitting at nine. Please come. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.